Appreciate Sean and Justin and the others leading today. In Mitch's absence, he's on vacation with some family and looked like he's having a good time based on social media and things he said. And so um, good to give him a little rest and relaxation. Uh, we're back in the book of Mark today. And um, here at Grace, we like to say it's all about Jesus. And we're showing that it's all about Jesus because we're spending roughly a year in the gospel of Mark walking with Jesus, watching Jesus seeing how Jesus handles situations, watching his disciples interact with him. And I think that the slow moving, just walking with Jesus um, through this gospel um, is good for us. As I immerse myself into the book, while we may be tracking through it slowly, Jesus, the pace of his life, his ministry is incredible. I mean, as you watch Jesus and his disciples just go from one situation to the next, I mean, just it's a rapid pace. And the, uh, his ministry is just, uh, just all-inclusive, all meaning just his whole, all the pressures of the crowds, the pressures of the religious leaders uh, who are um, trying to destroy him. Even we've seen three counters already with Satan or demonic forces. And so Jesus is our model for life, and he's our model for ministry. And as we watch, we want to, we've called this just like Jesus because that's what our growing to be more like Christ, what we call sanctification, that's what sanctification is, becoming more like him in our lives. And so what better way to do that than study his life and his ministry. And so we see that Jesus is very busy in ministry. In fact, Mark uses a transitional word a lot during his book, and, and the words immediately, immediately he does this, and immediately does that. And it's just this rapid pace that, that he's showing Thus, and so you would guess that Jesus, being fully man and fully God, as we've seen over the weeks, there's times when he's tired, he's wiped out, he needs to sleep, and there's times when he just needs a break from ministry. And and I can't help but to think in today's text that if he's like us in this way, that going home is a welcome relief, right? To go home, there's nothing like just when you're tired, when you're beat. All you want to do is be at your house. In your surroundings, just be able to relax and chill out a bit. But unfortunately for Jesus, this is not the case. And he had been there before, and he definitely didn't receive a very good welcome. And today he's going to go there again, and he's going to face some of the greatest resistance that he's going to encounter at all in his ministry until he actually gets to the cross. He's just what I want to call stubborn unbelief. Just people are unwilling to receive him unwilling to see objectively what Jesus is doing, what he's about, and they reject him right in his hometown of Nazareth. So let's look at Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses just 1 through 6 today. Mark 6, 1 through 6. I read out of the ESV version, ESV, so if you're looking there on your Bible and hoping having more luck than Buzz did today, um, you can find the ESV version and you can follow along, and we also have it on the slides. Uh, It says in verse 1, Jesus, he went away from there, that was the Sea of Galilee area, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, which is Saturday, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives 
and in his own household. And he could not do, and he could do no mighty works there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection. God, we thank you for the hope that we have, that we can know you, God, our perfect Father, because of Jesus Christ. And God, for anyone here today who can't call you Father because they don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, may today be the day that they see the incredible worth of Christ. Help them to not be like those in his hometown who were so familiar with him and so, um, so casual with their understanding that they rejected him. God, help no one here today to do that, but to embrace Jesus for who he is and who he proved himself to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Just a, a very quick point of review here as we've been tracking through this book that you may have forgotten that this book of Mark the author, John Mark, most likely, and John Mark was an associate of the Apostle Peter. And so Peter is giving Mark his account of the things that he actually personally interacted with. He saw firsthand, and then Mark took and he recorded these things into the form that we have today, the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark consists of two main sections. And this is, kind of gives you a good bird's eye view to help you understand where we're going in this book. In this first section where Jesus, and, and it's roughly chapters 1 through 8, Jesus is showing himself as the powerful Messiah. We've seen him do incredible works, incredible miracles. He's authentic, authenticating himself. In Mark, Mark doesn't focus as much on the teaching aspect as he does Jesus' power and his authority. And then in the second half of the book, we're going to see Jesus as the suffering servant. Because Mark gives roughly one-third of this book, of this gospel, to either Jesus talking about the cross or actually the events of the cross. And the major turning point we'll see in, in a few weeks is chapter 8, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say I am? Who do people say I am? And they responded, you know, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're a prophet. And then he asked them pointingly, personally, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers up first, as usual, and he says, you're the Christ. You're the Christ. And that's kind of the turning point, literally, physically, and also in the book, we see that Jesus begins to move toward Jerusalem, begins to move toward the cross. And so I love the fact that he asked them personally, who do you say I am? Because it matters who we know Jesus to be personally. It's not something that we just inherit from our fathers. We don't just get because we were born into a Christian home. It's something that we have to decide personally, who is Jesus? And so the Gospel of Mark is primarily written to Gentiles. It's written to Roman believers, most likely. And, and one of the reasons I believe Mark penned this book the way that he did and ordered it and structured the way he did it was because it was important for them to have hope because they were undergoing a great deal of persecution, a great deal of suffering. And so to see Jesus, their Messiah, their Savior, as himself suffering, he's the suffering servant, that gives them hope. That gives them reason to, to live and reason to go about and live their life for Jesus. And I think that the, the Gospel of Mark can best be summed up in chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus says, For even the Son of Man came not to be 
served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I think that verse kind of really sums up this entire book. And so if we're going to be just like Jesus, then we're going to have to be servants. We're going to have to be servants who are willing to suffer for the name of Christ. We're willing to suffer for him. And I think it's important as we look at this narrative today that this is a very critical teaching thing for the disciples. They need to be aware of what's in their future. They need to see the rejection and the suffering that Jesus is facing. So let's look at verse 1. So he went away from there, and here's the map, just to kind of give you a little perspective. Go ahead and put the next slide up, Thad. A little perspective. He's up in the, in the north part here around the Sea of Galilee. He went over, you remember, to cast out the demons, came back over, and now he headed back to his hometown of Nazareth. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and the disciples followed him. And so Jesus was drawing these big, huge crowds. People loved his teaching. They were in all of his miracles. And they were still trying to figure out exactly who he was. But generally speaking, the majority of the people looked on him with favor at this point. But Nazareth is the one big exception that we see in this book. So he goes to his hometown to preach and to minister. And as I mentioned before, he had been there before. And it's interesting that the, the, the city of Nazareth today, it's known for being the place of Jesus. Jesus is the pride, so to speak, of Nazareth. But they're the very people who rejected him because of their pride. And so the, the people who should have embraced him the most, these were the people that rejected him. Just really quickly, on the first time that he went to Nazareth, uh, that he stood up in the synagogue like he did today, he begins to read out of the Old Testament of Isaiah, chapter 61, verse 1 and 2. He, he speaks this prophetic word that Isaiah gives, and he says, today this is fulfilled in me. And he sits down. So basically what he says is, I'm the Messiah. I'm God's chosen one who has been sent to rescue you. Yet the people there the first time did not respond very well. In fact, not well at all. They tried to actually kill him. And so Jesus returns again, this time with his 12 disciples. He's, as I said, he's preparing them for their own ministry assignment, their own rejection they're going to get. And we're going to see that in next week's passage, next week's text that he sends them out, and they need to be prepared. If Jesus himself could be rejected in his very hometown, the very people who saw him and watched him, then they can for sure be rejected and suffer persecution by people. And so this is a teaching time. It's a mentoring time for his disciples. And I think it's interesting, verse 2, Jesus again on the Sabbath, he goes to begin to teach in the synagogue. He begins to teach in the synagogue. And I think it's important for us to understand as we look at the life of Jesus how central teaching is, how critical teaching is. I think in an era we live today where self-help, feel good, asking people, how do you feel about this text? What do you think about this text? What do you think about this verse? And while sometimes those questions can be used correctly, many times that our society just spends so much time on just feeling good, and how does this make me feel, and does it build me up? Is it me central? Am I the center of the gospel? And Jesus goes in to teach and to show people who he is and what he's about, and he uses his time to instruct people from his word. And why does Jesus put so much emphasis on teaching? Why are we to put so much emphasis on teaching? Why do you take an hour and a half out of your time each Sunday to come here 
to, for a lot of the time to be taught God's word. Why is that critical and that important? The scripture tells us that God has granted Satan to be the ruler of this world. Some way, somehow, he's given him incredible influence in this world, and he's the one that behind the scenes sculpts people's ideas, opinions, goals, hopes, and dreams, and the view of the majority of the people very much is influenced by Satan, whether we realize it or not, which is, what do I get out of this world? What's in this world for me? And so I think it's critical that we understand how Satan works. We talked about this a few weeks ago, that he's constantly distorting reality. He's constantly trying to make us believe lies, that he's trying to elevate things and say, these things are what's important in life. And we take our eyes off him, we put them on other things that we think at the moment are so important, and he tells us half-truths, and it ultimately leads people to damnation. But as Christians... We have to have our minds constantly renewed and reshaped by God's word. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds, is what the scripture says. We have to constantly have our minds reshaped and renewed by the word if we're going to live the life that God's called us to live. And that's why teaching is important and is critical. Because our minds have to be renewed and reshaped. And we need to be called back constantly to the word and say, what's important? What's valuable? And that's what we love about worship time. That's what we love about coming here together on Sundays is it's a reminder, it's a call to keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. And so Satan wants to distort that. Right teaching allows us to understand what really matters in life, what really is important in life. And it's not just about receiving a bunch of head facts and knowledge. Some people think, you know, that's all it's about. It's just knowing more stuff. But it's truth that changes the heart, that transforms our heart. And so there has to be content. There must be content. That's why we go through the Word. That's why we preach the Word. That's why we understand we want to know theology. We want to know how the Bible fits together. Because that truth is important. There must be content for God to send to our heart. Or otherwise we're just providing fluff, just pointless stuff. We're wasting our time. So Jesus, once again, he goes to the synagogue. He begins to teach. And look at verse 2. They initially, it seems like they, they're, they're starting to, to, to listen. They're taking notice. Verse 2, he began to teach, and many who heard him were astonished. And so this may be an astonishment of, wow, Jesus' teaching, as is mentioned oftentimes, his teaching so much different than the rabbis of the day because his authority, he's not just repeating stuff. He's not just showing these other things and how that we can keep these laws and these commandments. Jesus is bringing about truth. He's bringing it with authority. And people note it, take notice. They're astonished, the word here is. They, they, they recognize there's something different about Jesus and what he's doing here. And they're astonished. Also, you can't help but to, to, to know that they were astonished for sure because here's a guy who was a youngster in their midst, grew up in their home, this hometown. He was part of their society, part of this little culture. This town probably had no more than four to 500 people, so everybody knew everybody here, and they definitely knew Mary and Joseph and Jesus. But their amazement quickly turns to skepticism as it did before. Look at verse, the second half of verse 2 and verse 3. They ask, where did this man get these things? Where did this wisdom come from? Um, how are these mighty things done by his hand? Isn't, we know this guy's family. We know his sisters. We know his brothers. And so no matter how profound his teaching was, and no matter how convincing his miracles were, that they rejected it ultimately. Why? Why does that happen? Why doesn't 
the people who have the best brain, so to speak, or the best understand logic the best? Why don't people who like have the best like minds grasp truth the best? That seems like to be the case, right? That if the if the the word is laid out and the truth is laid out and we point people to the truth, it seems like that it would just make logical sense for them to believe the truth. But here is the thing that the scripture points out over and over again: is faith is always a gift from God. It's a gift from God. It's not something you can just conjure up on your own and say, I'm going to believe this. God gifts you with faith, Scripture says. And so while they could sit there and they could listen, they could even be astonished. They could even be a little bit amazed at his authority and his teaching. Ultimately, hard hearts won't budge without God's intervention, no matter how smart or educated a person is, no matter how overwhelming the evidence is of Jesus, no matter how much he shows them. Those people in his very hometown, the people who should know him the best, rejected him. This week, I was, as I was studying, I ran across an amazing scientist. His name's Francis Collins. You may have heard of this guy. He's world-renowned. He's not just a, a, a great scientist. I mean, he led the Human Genome Project, which identified and mapped all the genes of the human body, and, and so this guy is like the top of the top tier. He actually runs the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And so you're talking about a guy who is respected among his peers, regardless of what he believes in his faith. They have to respect him because of his incredible ability, his credible intellect. And a lot of times the atheists and the people who don't believe that God really exists in the, and don't believe the Scripture a lot of times they'll look at these people like Francis Collins and say, well, he grew up in church. You know, he, he was raised in that, so he can't break away from it. But Francis Collins was not raised in church. In fact, he was an atheist. And I, and I just want to share this quote with you because it really reinforces this idea that no matter how much proof is laid out there before you, ultimately God is the one that gives the faith. He said, I had to admit that the science I love so much was powerless to answer questions such as, what is the meaning of life? Why am I here? Why does mathematics work anyway? If the universe had a beginning, who created it? Why are the physical constraints in the universe so finely tuned to allow the possibility of complex life forms? Why do humans have a moral sense? What happens after we die? But reason, reason alone cannot prove the existence of God. Faith is reason plus revelation, and the revelation part requires one to think with the spirit as well as with the mind. You have to hear the music, not just read the notes on the page. Ultimately, a leap of faith is required. For me, that leap came in my 27th year after a search to learn more about God's character led me to the person of Jesus Christ. Here was a person with remarkably strong historical evidence of his life who made astonishing statements about loving your neighbor and whose claims about being God's son seemed to demand a decision about whether he was deluded or the real thing. After resisting for nearly two years, I found it impossible to go on living in such a state of uncertainty, and I became a follower of Jesus. That's awesome. That's amazing. And it just goes to show you that the very people who knew Jesus the best, they allowed their pride to obscure the obvious. 
they allowed their, their, their pride, their familiarity to obscure what was right in front of them. And it just reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, where Paul writes, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he might become wise. And there has to be a place in our lives where we, we see the evidence. We look and see that, it, that there is this overwhelming evidence of Jesus' existence, who he was and who he claimed to be, and proved it again and again. But it comes to a point where we do have to say, I can't find 100% certainty from a scientific point of view. I can't just prove the existence of Jesus like I can prove that I'm sitting here in this chair today. At some point, there has to come this, this leap of faith, this step of faith. And that's what Francis Collins did. That's what many of you have done. Unfortunately, that's not what Jesus' very hometown did. They could not become fools to become wise. And look at verse 2 again, the second part of verse 2. These were the questions they were asking. Where did this man get these? Where did he get this ability? Where did he get this, this ability to reason and, and lay out this, this, this stuff with authority? Where did he get all this wisdom how is he able to do these mighty works, these miracles that he's doing with his hands? They can't deny this stuff. I mean, these works are right there in front of them. They're analyzing them. They're looking at them. They're discussing them. But they can't handle the truth here. In spite of the overwhelming evidence, they would not believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. Why weren't they able to trust him? I think we find that in the last two questions. Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and here's his brothers, here's his sisters, right here among us. Isn't he just a normal, ordinary, average guy we saw for 29, 30 years of life? And if you think about it, they were discussing among themselves, even his own brothers at this point, remember, they think he's, he's a lunatic, they think he's crazy. Remember, they went to rescue him from himself and bring him home because he was delusional. They thought they knew Jesus. They had been his neighbor. They had seen him growing up, the little boy down the street. They had seen him in his dad's carpenter shop. They probably even bought furniture from Jesus at some point. We have an expression that says, familiarity breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. And actually, this expression dates itself back to before Jesus' time. What does that mean? Buzz mentioned his dogs this morning. I was thinking about um, our dog um, named Scout, or Harrison's dog named Scout. And I'm not a dog. I was never a dog owner. I, we never had animals growing up except for a very short time where my brother had a dog, but it was an outside dog, and it didn't last very long. And, and, and so I'm really not super familiar with, with dogs and how to be a dog owner, per se, you know? And my experience with dogs mostly comes from because I love to run the neighborhoods and my encounters with dogs trying to bite me and, and get after me. And I was bitten one time on the, on the leg. Fortunately, it just barely got me. It got mostly my shorts. And so when we got uh, our dog, we, uh, her, her name is Scout. Harrison was set on that, on that name. And so we went with that name, even if it was a female. Scout's a good, good girl name, good strong girl name. And, and what's interesting, when somebody approaches the door to our house, Mostly the UPS, uh, the FedEx people, she goes crazy. She goes ballistic. I mean, she just, you would think she was this fierce guard dog. I mean, and she is barking 
and, and jumping and spit coming out, and our windows always, the front window of the door always has slobber all over it. I mean, the, these UPS people, I'm serious, they run away from our house. Maybe they run because they're in a hurry, but they do run away from our house. If I didn't know Scout the way that I know Scout, I would be scared to death, petrified of her. But I think it's laughable because I know Scout. And Scout doesn't have a scary bone in her entire body. I mean, in fact, she would just lick you to death if you opened the door. No matter how horrible and nasty she sounds, she's not. She, she would never hurt anyone. But the problem is, because I've seen that in her and understand that, you know what, she's not a threat, I've taken that and transformed uh, it to all the other dogs that I come in contact with now. So I'm out running, and a dog comes up, and it's charging, and it's slobbering, and it's barking. I'm not really scared anymore because I saw how Scout was with the bark and the crazy stuff. And I'm like, oh, there's, there, you know, she's not going to hurt anybody. So now I think that all the dogs I come in contact with are not going to hurt me and not going to be um, mean and, and, and nasty. But obviously that's terrible thinking, right? That's awful thinking. That's this idea of familiarity breeds contempt. It's an expression that means that extensive knowledge of or close association with someone or something leads to a loss of respect for them or it. So extensive knowledge of, this is a dictionary definition, extensive knowledge of or close association with someone or something leads to a loss of respect for them or it. And so that's kind of the idea what Jesus is getting at in verse 4. It's kind of his way of saying familiarity breeds contempt. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. But in the case of Jesus, the contempt shown by the Nazarenes said nothing about Jesus, but it said a lot about them. The people that should have known Jesus the best understood him the least. Think about it. Jesus lived a perfect life. And I'm sure that even his brothers and sisters probably didn't hit the reality of that, didn't hit them always at the time. Because as you're living with someone, you see this, but Jesus never, ever lost his temper in an ungodly way. You know, in the carpenter shop, he never got mad and cursed because he hit his finger with a hammer. He never got with the other single guys in the, in the neighborhood and started talking inappropriately about the, the women as they were walking by. Jesus never disobeyed his parents. Jesus lived an absolutely perfect life, totally perfect life. But they couldn't explain Jesus, so they rejected Jesus. And if they felt this way about Jesus, who was absolutely and completely perfect and never did anything wrong, Mark's point is, and Jesus' point to his disciples is, don't you think they're going to do the same thing to you as well? No matter how holy you try to be, no matter how impeccable you try to live your life and follow the principles of Scripture, no matter how much you try to be guided by the Holy Spirit and to live the fruits of the Spirit through his power, ultimately, you're probably not going to be received by a lot of people because it's really not about you that they're rejecting. They rejected Jesus. They're going to reject you because you make them feel guilty. You make them feel convicted by your life. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this more in just a second, but people are so quick to point out, you know, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Yet so many times, it's not hypocrisy at all they're offended by. They're offended by Jesus. And that's important to remember, and it was important for Jesus' disciples to remember. Today being Father's Day, 
just really thought about how that guy's fear often stops us from taking the spiritual leadership in our homes. Because this familiarity that our families see us on our good days and our bad days, our ugly days. And oftentimes we can feel fake because these, these, these big biblical truths that we're trying to teach and provide and show our family, yet we're not always able to live them out the way that we desire to live them out, are we? And so I think there's this fear of failure that stops us, fear of criticism. What will they say if I you know, say, hey, let's, let's read the Bible together tonight. And, and, and you're thinking, well, my kids, man, they know that I, I, just, man, I just lost my temper. I just went, you know, I, I just said some things I shouldn't have said a couple of hours ago. And now they're going to see me getting out and trying to read the Bible. And so we feel like they're going to see our inconsistencies and our weaknesses. And I think that stops us from truly leading our families, guys, the way that we should lead. And here's the thing. I, I misunderstood hypocrisy for a long time. I used to think that hypocrisy was just not being able to live up to the standard of the things that I believe. But hypocrisy is intentionally misleading people and pretending to be something that you're not. If you're intentionally misleading people and you're intentionally pretending to be something that you're not and you're saying things that you know aren't true about your life, that's hypocrisy. But a Christian simply to demonstrate that he is a sinner does not convict him of hypocrisy. That's important, dads, to remember. Just because you're a sinner and we're sinners, and we don't always measure up to the standard that we know is true, doesn't mean that we are going, that that we're a hypocrite. I read this quote by R.C. Sproul several years ago, and it really changed the way that I go about preaching messages, because I think he really hits the nail on the head here in this quote. He says, every preacher and teacher of God's word is vulnerable to the charge of hypocrisy. In fact, the more faithful he is to the word of God in his preaching, the more liable he is to the charge of hypocrisy. Why? Because the more faithful a man is to the word of God, the higher the message is that he will preach. The higher the message, the further he will be from obeying it himself. So dads, I hope you'll own that quote today. And you'll you'll see that there's this the gospel brings us to, to a place of humility. It helps us to quickly admit that we do fall short. And our kids and our wives need to see that. They need to see a humility of a servant that says, I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm seeking God. They see you in the scriptures. But at the same time, they know and you're quick to admit when you fail and you're quick to say you're sorry when you don't measure up. I'm going to encourage dads today on Father's Day. Look, don't just hear me and let this go in one ear and out the other. Make a commitment today to be a better spiritual leader in the house. Make a, make a commitment today that you are going to truly sit down and, and at times be very intentional with your family about leading them in the truths of God's word. And you know where this has to start? This has to start with you falling in love with Jesus. It has to start with you being in the word, not because you need so much knowledge in order to execute this, what you need is a passion for Jesus more than you need a bunch of knowledge. Knowledge will come if you spend enough time in the Word, but you need a passion for His Word. We like to highlight videos in here, and, and you know, oftentimes we put people on the screen, and many of you are nervous about being up on the screen because you think, well, I'm sure not perfect. I, you know, I sure don't have it together. But the guy that I asked to do this video today, I've seen incredible growth in his life. 
in this area of just wanting to spend time in the Word and in very small steps beginning to lead his family. And I really appreciate him and his, because naturally he's, he's kind of a shy guy. He'll tell you. He, this is way out of his comfort zone. But he stepped up and did this. So watch Ed Jordan as he shares about his faith. I really never really read the Bible except for one other time when I was going through some hard times in my, in my life. And um, he's a loving God. He opened my eyes by taking from me. But what he took, he doubled or quadrupled, you know, um, what he has given me. And actually, he's done a lot more than that. Starting, I guess, at the beginning of this year, I started um, reading the, the Bible, and it really kind of came from being um, insecure um, about my knowledge of the, of the Bible. It has um, really helped work, um, dealing with people, problems, um, viewing bad situations. It, it just really has changed my perspective, the way I deal with people. The more I read, the more I wanted to um, learn more. I see the bright side, you know, or searching for the bright side, you know, to a certain situation and, and appreciating that, you know, it's, um, I don't know if there's appreciation for what God has done. I mean, he has blessed me with a, a lot. Thank you, Ed. I know it's hard to watch yourself on the screen, but you did a great job. You know, your family may be very difficult right now. It may be in a very dysfunctional place right now. But if you're going to be just like Jesus, a suffering servant, then you begin as a servant. You begin as a servant. We find Jesus who had all the authority of a king. But what's he, what do you find him doing? He's kneeling down. He's washing the disciples' feet. He's given his life away for us. And so maybe setting a new bar in your household means that you step up as a servant, guys. You begin to serve and, and, and to make known that man, there's been times where you failed them big time and you're sorry. And if you need to talk to someone and maybe get some encouragement how to go about doing this, one of our pastors would be more than happy to meet with you. We have nine elders who are godly men who I would dare say you ask any one of them to say, help mentor me, help me understand how to be a better dad and a better husband. These guys would definitely take you in under their wing and begin to teach you and train you. We talk a lot about Fight Club, and this, this is an opportunity to get around guys who can help hold you accountable and mentor you. But don't just let family life happen. Just don't let it go on around you, but be intentional. I challenge you to take leadership in your home. Begin to take action. And I promise you this, that you will, if you're consistent and you're patient, you'll earn the respect of your family. You really will. They'll begin to see. Because here's why. God promises. He says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. That's what you need to lean into, guys. That God's going to finish what he started. If he called you into salvation, he's going to finish the process. And so you lean in as he moves, in, moves you and, and prompts you to take leadership. Trust that he's, he's the one doing the work. He's the one doing the, giving you the power. And he's one day, he's molding you, and one day you will be more and more in his image as you give yourself humbly to him.
So lean into that, guys. Lean into that on this Father's Day. But back to our text. The, the Nazarenes, their unbelief was unbelievable to Jesus. He could not believe what he was seeing. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says, He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. You know, we've seen a lot of people so far marveling at Jesus, but we've yet to see Jesus marveling at other people besides one other situation. And in this case, he's marveling because they, their, their belief is so unbelievable. They're, it's just Jesus can't, just can't really fathom the fact that here he is, his hometown people, and they're rejecting him. How horrible it would be to amaze God with your unbelief. That would be a bad statement. Look back at verse 5 again. It says, he was able to do no mighty works there. That needs some explanation, I believe. Mark's intention isn't here to express Jesus' inability to do miracles. It was really showing that, that the fact that Jesus wasn't limited because of his ability, but he was, his willingness to do these miracles because of their unbelief. He was unwilling to, to step in and do those things because of their pride. And so, in this case, Jesus still had all the power and authority that he's always had. But we see Mark particularly lay out the fact that Jesus oftentimes did these things in response to people's faith. And so he wasn't morally compelled to show his power. It says, except for that he laid hands on a few sick people. So a few people humbled themselves and came to Jesus, and Jesus healed those people. But sadly, the majority of them would not believe, would not put their faith in Jesus and so I want you maybe to write this down. It's in your notes. Unbelief freezes the exercise of God's power. Unbelief freezes the exercise of God's power. And I think about us as a church. I think about us as individuals. Is it possible that we're missing out on something because of unbelief, of just falling into the, the sin of familiarity, that we do this every Sunday, we go through the motions. Uh, I mean, we, know, we have like 10 Bibles laying around and every version possible on our phone. We have so much at our disposal that we can begin to lose our awe of Jesus. And we can fall into this pride, this arrogance, this attitude, the very attitude the Nazarenes had that said, we don't believe you. No matter what you do, we just don't believe you. And look, Jesus, because of their unbelief, verse 6, he chooses to just, I'm going to take my message somewhere else. I'm going to move somewhere else. And he went, uh, went about among the villages teaching so he left their area, and he went other places. So the question, have you lost your awe of Jesus? That's the question I want to ask you today. Christian, have you lost your awe of Jesus? If we lose our awe of Jesus, we lose the fact of who Jesus is and what the gospel really means, I promise you, I promise you, you will fill that void with other things. Because we've been created to be worshipers. We're going to worship something. And if we're not worshiping Jesus, we're going to find lesser things that really ultimately will end up in destruction and disappointment if we don't point our affections and attention to him. And this idea of worship, I don't want you to be intimidated by that. Worship just means I'm going to, I'm going to sit before God and spend time with him. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to turn my relationships to be more Jesus-centered in the conversations that happen. And I'm not just going to allow that to be the case at K-Group or at, when it's expected at Bible study, but I'm going to allow my life to begin to reflect Jesus in all areas of my life. And that starts with knowing God. And as I mentioned last week, 
and it's true for my life, it's true for every elder in this building, it's true for every Christian in this building. Some days when you open your Bible and you look at it and you begin to read, you just feel like there's really no worship happening there. Other times, I mean, you feel on top of the world like God is just showing you and teaching you so much. Other times you feel cold and distant. As a youth pastor, the main question I always got was, why can't I feel God? I don't feel like God's there. I don't feel like he's, he's with me. And that's the faith aspect, that I'm going to worship God on the mornings when I feel like God isn't there because I know that it's not based on feelings. It's based on the truth of God and who he is. And I'm going to worship God when I feel God's there and his presence is there and, and the truths he's shown me in Scripture are just making my heart rejoice. So oftentimes worship is down here. But you know what? Down here you give God the best you have. And when you're up here, you give God the best you have. Worship is bringing your best to God. It's bringing your best to God. And your best isn't always the same on every day. What's your best? What's your best? Bring your best at that point, at that time, to God. But when we lose our awe of Jesus, we'll begin to see symptoms in our life. Let me just point out a few of these, and then we'll, we'll close. What are the symptoms of if you've lost your, your zeal for God, your awe of Jesus? Ministry begins to be a drudgery, plain and simple. You begin to look for escape routes out of your ministry. It's too hard. It's too much commitment. It costs me too much time. I'm too busy. See, when we begin to say those questions to ourselves and ask ourselves those questions or repeat those things, we see that something's going on here. We're beginning to lose our awe for Christ. We pull away from community. Well, I know enough about the Bible, and really there's nothing new I'm learning on Sunday, and so does it really matter if we're there or not there? And when we lose our awe for Jesus, we begin to pull away from other believers, other Christians. Dads and moms, when we lose our awe for Jesus, other things become more important than teaching and instructing and guiding our children in the ways of God. We begin to put our focus on other things, and lesser gods become way more elevated, and Jesus goes down. We stop loving, we stop caring, because we think, is it really worth the sacrifice? Because all love requires sacrifice. If we're going to love and care for people, it costs us something. It costs us something. So what do you do when you lose your awe of Jesus? And we all go through periods where that happens. The way out of this pride is worship, plain and simple. is to look upon a God who is greater than ourselves. We recover awe when we acknowledge the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice, the depths of our sin, and the heights of his love. So it's humility. It's coming to Jesus, admitting we fall short. We still need a Savior. We still need a Savior. And we worship him with what we have at the moment. So make it personal. I know you hear me every week, and it's easy you know, to just get used to being here and hearing my voice and hearing the things of Scripture. But let's make this real personal and look inward for a minute. If you've lost your awe of Jesus and that, ma- and that matters to you, you care, worship is your response, your only response. You must fall down before God and say, show me Jesus afresh and anew. Show me the gospel fresh and anew that I was lost but now I'm found. The band's going to end today with a song called Reckless Love. 
And that may be a little confusing because you think, okay, I don't get it. Like, reckless love. How is that reckless? Here's what this song means. It means that when you look at what God did by sending Jesus, that seems absurd. It seems crazy from the world standpoint. It seems foolish. Why would God do such a thing? That seems very reckless to send your son to die for our sins. But what it does, it shows you the extent, first and foremost, of the offense to God our sin was. That our sin had to have a perfect solution, a perfect resolution. It could not have just a band-aid put over it. It cost God tremendously. It cost Jesus Christ his life. And then we see the love. God did not have to do that but the love he had for his creation, for his people. That's the gospel we have to reflect upon. God, I see you. I see the incredible sacrifice. I want to once again embrace with a passionate heart the gospel, the truth, the scripture, the cross, the resurrection. Because I find myself today very cold, very distant, maybe having even lost my first love. Will you respond with worship? Not just today. I say this all the time. Monday, probably a better indicator of your decision today than today. Are you going to lead your family, guys? Tomorrow is probably a better indicator if this is real rather than what happens after the service today over lunch. Let's take action. Let's be intentional through God's power, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for Jesus, the suffering servant. I thank you that we can look at his life, see his death, celebrate his resurrection with hope. God, I thank you that you're not here beating us up today because of our lack of passionate response. You're wooing your children those who you know and love, those who you've blessed with faith, back to yourself. And God, our heart hurts and breaks for those who are unmoved and unwilling to budge because of the very sin the Nazarenes had, the the people of your hometown, Jesus, that they would not be budged, would budge because of the pride in their heart, God. Help us to not be like that, God. Help us to be sensitive hearts, hearts made of flesh, not of stone, that hear your word and are moved to action. And so, God, I pray that dads will be mobilized today, that this church will be mobilized in response, that we'll be mobilized tomorrow morning to get up and to spend time with you, or tomorrow night before we go to bed to spend time with you and bring you what we have. God, pray for those who are in the midst of suffering and they're hurting and they can't see any light at the end of the tunnel and they don't understand what you're doing, God. I pray that their faith will be strong. They'll trust your goodness in your hand and look for the day when you will make all things anew and right again. And in their groaning and their hurting and in the pain that they're in, allow them to bring to you the best that they have at the moment. In Jesus' powerful, strong name we pray, amen.